What we need to know is big, and what is available to know is enormous. And what tends to happen to people when things become enormous is they get baffled and they shut down because they just don't know where to start. So they go back to the smallest thing they can work with. I'm here today with David Orney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good. I was thinking a little bit about last week's episode and you were saying we were going to talk a little bit about how to learn this week. And I'm almost a little bit astounded. I actually haven't had any solid thoughts about it whatsoever. And it's so abstract. I'm not sure exactly how do you learn. This, I think, is the massive problem that we have education systems to get stuff into people's heads. And we have pedagogical theories that are in vogue, then out of vogue or in competition. But actually, how to learn at a basic level comes down to neurology. I think probably a good place to start before the neurology, though, is what is it we need to learn? Because that is often the reason that education systems change and we change pedagogy. So what I would contend is that what we used to need to learn was the facts necessary to function in a world that changed slowly. So if we say, look, from the period from you know start of agriculture, growth of cities, through to maybe a thousand years ago, in the main, most people didn't need to learn to read. They didn't learn to write. They didn't need to know advanced maths. They needed to learn practical skills, how to work on the farm, how to spin material, or sorry, spin thread, how to turn spun thread into cloth through weaving. They were technical skills that you could learn by first observing, then learning the basics, then incrementally improving. So we end up in the world of situated learning, which I'm sure we'll come back to later in the podcast. But by the Industrial Revolution, what we need to learn is getting bigger and bigger. You need to know more about science. You need to learn more about maths. You perhaps need to learn about how to do you know, uh, accounting. You need to be able to make sense of more complex social systems. As societies get bigger, you need to know how to fit into society, what rules you have to abide by. So the what gets bigger and bigger and bigger. There's more and more things we have to learn. And then we get to sort of the computer age. And not only do we have all the things we need to learn to function in a job, to fit in society, to be socially acceptable, we now have the added craziness of you know, largely thanks to the internet and Google wanting information to be widely available, we have the ability to know anything if we want to. So what we need to know is big, and what is available to know is enormous. And what tends to happen to people when things become enormous is they get baffled and they shut down because they just don't know where to start. So they go back to the smallest thing they can work with. So it seems to me our education system has stayed fixated on we are going to teach people what they need to learn. We're going to teach them facts. We're going to teach them specific stuff. And yet, how do you know that much stuff and remember that much stuff and then learn the stuff that goes on top of it? I would argue we're in a period where we can't just learn stuff anymore. What we need to teach people to do is they need to learn how to teach themselves. They need to learn how to learn. 
So I would argue that you know education is such a struggle for so many people now because it's, hey, this month we do these facts, next month we do these facts. We'll test you on all of this, but at the end of it, what do you really know? You can't possibly remember all the facts because you've not been able to give them a reason and people keep putting more stuff in front of you. So you know, if you've experienced this semester with me in class, I don't really mind what facts you lot learn this semester. I care that you learn how to teach yourselves, that you learn how to learn. Mm. So you don't you you disagree with a curriculum in some respect, where a curriculum is more, I suppose that's too broad of a descriptor, but where the curriculum, let's say in schools, at least in Australia, is based on, yes, we're going to learn certain facts at certain periods, and they get changed um, almost at a national level for for public schools, and then they're all based around completing tests such as NAPLAN. It's yeah. To my mind, what we've done is we've created a very big bucket. You know, all the things are in the bucket that you're going to have to learn and be tested on. But the smallest part of that content is learning how to learn. Mm. And what I think I'd like to see is two buckets of equal size where one is learning how to learn and the other bucket is things you need to learn at a particular age that will help you develop and help you fit in society and help you find your place, help you construct your identity, help you work out what you want to do, help you succeed at uni or at TAFE or wherever else you want to go. And that there's no balance from what I can see between the bucket of learning how to learn and the bucket of things you need to learn at any given point. And that, yeah, to me, this is the massive failure, not just of modern education, but I think education since probably the Industrial Revolution, where the what we needed to learn just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the assumption was somehow all the other stuff, how to be a person, how to form your identity, how to make sense of the world, how to teach yourself a new language, how to teach yourself more advanced maths, all got pushed to the side in favour of we're going to test you on the next bunch of facts. Is there reason to doing the fact model let's say the fact learning model because let's say some students in at least you know secondary primary and secondary education don't display curiosity that allows them to learn how to learn like do you think there's like a a natural curiosity to want to learn that that some people don't show and therefore it's difficult to um, entice them i think very rarely is there a child who is not curious But when every semester you get the next bunch of stuff you're going to be tested on, where's your curiosity getting you? It gets you just enough facts on something to go, hey, I passed the test. Oh, there's new facts. There's not enough sort of personal input into that process, I don't think. So Mm -hmm. if we look at like the senior school project here in South Australia, it was initially envisioned it would be at the end of year 12 so students had the most ability to do an individual project and show all their skills really effectively and also work on something that mattered to them. They could see what they'd become through school, what they'd achieved. And yet the majority of high schools run the senior school project as early in year 11 as possible with as much teacher guidance as possible so it doesn't mess up the kids' tertiary admission score. So something that was meant to be an incredibly formative experience has become a summative experience related to getting a tertiary admission mark. Mm. It's... You know, they've taken a good idea, but because of the testing of facts, they've undone its formative potential. And that, you know, that is really destructive. I remember doing a personal project in year nine, and I remember the feeling that 
I was never someone who wanted a whole lot of direction anyway, but I remember feeling as if I couldn't come up with anything that I wanted to learn so desperately because I was so used to having people tell me what it is I needed to learn. Precisely. And this is why, to my mind, it has to be seen you know, two buckets of the same size. Hmm. That leaving learning to learn intact means leaving people's inquisitiveness open, which means some chunk of every day has to be, well, what would you like to do for the next hour? Hmm. We have art equipment and we have sports equipment. As a group, go vote. Now, I'd be happy to try that with six-year-olds. <laughs> and my reason for saying that is there's a, a brilliant American psychiatrist. He, he might be dead now, called William Glasser. And he came up with a psychiatric theory called choice theory where he really worked out that you know, free will, we don't have it, but we always have choices. And the biggest choice is to behave differently tomorrow than we behaved yesterday. William Glasser's second wife, his first wife I think died of cancer, his second wife was a teacher. They decided to try and apply choice theory to schools and set up schools based on choice theory. And one of the most fascinating things they tried when they did it with five-year-olds starting school, first day, okay, kids, do you want rules? And the kids sit in silence like, really? Grown-ups are asking us if we want rules. <laughs> and the kids go, no. Mm. And the adults go, okay. So over the next couple of days of lunch times, you'd have kids putting sand down other people's shirts. You'd have kids stealing other people's lunches. You'd have kids running off with the best toy and not bringing it back. Anarchy. You'd have, well, you know, worse than anarchy, verging on nihilism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then a few days in, the teachers would just let it get bad enough that the kids were starting to question it. Mm. And then they go, okay, let's all sit down again. Is no rules going well? No. Do you want rules? Yes. <laughs> what rules do you want? No one's allowed to put sand down anyone's T-shirt. All right, that's a rule. No one's allowed to steal anyone's lunch. That's a rule. Mm. Once the kids are a little bit older, a little bit more experienced, okay, okay, kids, can you see that these rules are about specifics? But what we actually need is general rules. Mm. What What's the one about sand down the T-shirt? Don't do harm. Mm. What's the rule about lunch? Don't steal. So that when the kids are old enough to make a different choice and an informed choice. And within choice theory schools, from the beginning right through to the end, at the end of high school, there is always a chunk of every day where a kid can choose exactly what they want to do. And it seems to me the best balance anyone has managed to find yet between you have to learn stuff because again all these choice schools will say look you've got to do the minimum amount of maths you know language science whatever but you know you can choose do you go to the morning class of it or the afternoon one mm. which way around does your day work better for you you know you have to do it but you get a choice in how you go about undertaking it in that model there's still the responsibility of you have to do this right to pass yes. so I, I know that a lot of people, once they get into their post-school world, this is coming from perspective of someone who's you know, been out of school for five years and just seen friends that have collapsed in the sense they haven't had a responsibility to anyone else but themselves mm. and done things they've wanted to do that aren't necessarily beneficial to them in the mm. long run. Is there a way to integrate that into the schooling system or is that something that you will only learn as an adult? I think this is where the choice theory model is actually such a good one because mm. it doesn't say you have free will. It simply says you have choices. Mm. There is no choice in having to do, you know, the mother tongue of the country, maths and science. It's non-negotiable. But everything else is. 
and what time of day you do the subject might be negotiable. Mm. So it's acknowledging very quickly you have choice, not freedom. Mm. And that you will be the consequence of your choices. That's really the big lesson that Glasser and his wife got out of setting schools up in this way. And one of their early experiments is they, they went into a high school in South Central LA where the graduation rate was about 10%. And in 18 months of being involved in the school, they turned around to the point where the kids they'd worked with for the 18 months, when they finished, they graduated with 70% of the class getting through the end of high school. Mm. So what they found very quickly is getting people to recognize you're not free. No one is, but you have choice. And the choices you make will directly reflect on where you end up next. And the getting people to take responsibility for those choices. You know, like the simple rule when they went into the high school in South Central LA was, if you are going to be disruptive, we'll ask you to leave. Because you know, we have the choice of doing that. You don't have to be in here in our school. Mm. You can go back to the non-choice theory bit of the school. Mm. And you know, kids who were disruptive just expected teachers would you know, come up with you know, excuses or try and discipline, and it would just be simply, well, no, you've had your one warning. Go away. Mm. Now, if you want to come back in a month, you can. But the same thing will happen again. You know, if you don't choose to opt in and learn, if you disrupt other people who are choosing to learn, we'll make the choice to ask you to leave. So there's always consequences in glass as well, even from the tiny kids you know, when they decide they want rules. So responsibility for your choices becomes evident at age five and is built on from that point forward. Instead of it being grown-ups saying, we're going to tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it, in as many situations as possible, they're taught cause and effect and consequence. Mm. Is that a result of the current schooling system being you know, linked back all the way to is it Russian military systems? Uh, if we believe Michel Foucault, it really gets us back mm. uh, to France, the you know, Industrial Revolution and Napoleon. So what Michel Foucault argues is that society used to use spectacles to discipline people. So you, a criminal, you would hang, draw and quarter them. Mm. You know, you'd make a big mess and people would go, ugh. Gross. But also it's not effective. It doesn't have any impact on the murder rate, violent crime rate, anything. Because people go, well, you haven't changed me. You've just given me a reason not to be caught. Mm. Whereas what Napoleon worked out with the military and the French state seemed to work out under him and after is surveillance is the most powerful thing in the world. So a Napoleonic military camp was laid out so that every general could see his colonel's tents. Every colonel could see his major's tents. Every major could see his captain's tents. Every captain could see his lieutenant's tents. Every lieutenant could see the tent of his sergeant and his platoon. And you never knew when the person above you was looking. But because the layout was so sophisticated, eventually you just start assuming you're always under surveillance. And you start to normalize your behavior because most of the training is about how we want you to behave. And this is the bit we haven't even touched on with education yet. We've been focusing on the what. Mm. But there's always, you know, the how. How are we going to get you to conform? As we move more and more away from, you know, discipline as a, you know, a spectacle, you know, overt violence, and move more towards what Foucault called normalization, self-regulation, we make sure you feel surveilled and we let you know exactly what you need to do to not be in trouble. 
Mm. So someone in the army camp knows what they have to do to not be yelled at. Factories in the early Industrial Revolution, exactly the same. There would be a more senior person at the end of every row of workbenches who wasn't there to work, they were there to surveil. Every school was the same. All the desks faced forwards and the teacher was at the front. And in early schools, the teacher was often on a raised platform. So they had the advantage of height to look down and over their students. And immaterial of how fast you were learning what needed to be learned, you were going to learn to self-regulate and normalise. You were going to learn to sit quietly, stay inside your space, do the minimum that was required of you, otherwise you will have been seen and you will be punished. Mm. Now, as we've got less and less violent, the punishments have got less extreme. But the principal purpose of 12 years of school and you know, really probably even kindergarten is still how to get someone to self-regulate as an effective member of society. It's all about knowing how to sit still, be quiet, do what you're told, answer the question when you're asked, play nicely with the other people of your age group. And you know, societies have always done self-regulation and normalisation to a degree. But what you see in the middle of the 19th century with the advent of modern public hygiene, child mortality rates go down dramatically. Infinitely more kids survive. Families end up infinitely bigger. Um, so suddenly classes of kids get bigger and bigger as more societies recognise with education, you get people who can do more productive things. So really what we see as you know, the number of children who live to school age increases is schools have to deal with more and more kids in societies where the societies value what education can do for the society. So school takes on a role of not just educating the elite to run the place with a sense of privilege. It takes on the job of educating as many people as possible to be productive citizens, to get them used to the idea of surveillance and having to meet minimum standards. We've kind of covered why, how, why the current system is failing uh, developing curiosity in, in some respect. We're teaching facts rather than how to learn. What, what is it that you can do in a classroom that will encourage people to work out how to learn? Like what it, what it, so I can see how being present in the classroom is, I mean, I've been through that system, right? And I've learnt plenty. I mean, there's plenty of math, math subjects and uh, topics that I've completely forgotten because I found no use for them post-school. That's partly due to my career choices. I think a big thing to recognise is that while the facts are being taken on board, fundamental skills need to be repeated and improved. Mm. That when there are too many things to learn, there's not enough emphasis on fundamentals. And here's where we need to get back to neurology. The reality is that anything you practice repeatedly with an aim of getting better at, the neurons involved in those circuits end up being wrapped by more myelin. Myelin is an insulator inside the brain. Essentially, if you imagine the nerve cells as the grey matter, the myelin is the white matter in our brain. And, and to give listeners a context, when Einstein died, he donated his brain to science. And everyone got very excited. Wow, this brain's going to be amazing. What are we going to see? And when they sort of froze it and sliced it and looked at the slices, they went, oh, the grey matter looks the same as a normal brain. Oh, this isn't helping. What's going on? Mm. Because at the time, all you know, neuroscience knew to look at was grey matter. 
When they looked again in the early 2000s, now they knew the importance of myelin, that this insulator would get wrapped around circuits. And the more myelin that was wrapped around a circuit, the faster that circuit would fire, the stronger it would fire, meaning you were better and faster at the thing that circuit enabled. And the more they looked at Einstein's brain, they went, there is masses of myelin in this guy's brain. And in the end, they concluded that he had somewhere between 30 to 40% more myelin than the average brain. Wow. Now, that was there because he kept working at things. Mm. He kept going, I did this yesterday, I did it okay. Tomorrow I want to do it better. And he kept added value to things he does. So the more things we try and cram into people's heads, the less strong circuits we make. So what we need to make half the time is about the skills and improving the skills because it's the skills that get strong. And some of those things need to be skills like literacy, numeracy, the social skills of how to connect with other people. But we need to be very careful that the skill side is obvious and the measure of that skill is honest. Teaching at university level. You know, first time I sat down with a class of university students was 2002 and I've just marked a mass of essays in 2018. Because I marked from the electronic copies, I can go back and look at hard drives I've kept from 2002 and look at was a distinction level essay in 2002. A basic distinction essay in 2002 was significantly better than a basic distinction essay in 2018. Really? The skills are falling. Mm. The more stuff we're trying to cram into people's heads, the less well they're learning the fundamental skills that can allow them to drive themselves forward successfully. So part of learning facts is not just learning facts. It's how to learn facts in a way that you can discern their value work out if a new fact is credible in relation to the ones you already have. So questions of sort of comprehension, analysis, synthesis are complicated but infinitely more important. The subjects I think that do that best, and this might be a biased opinion because they were my favourite subjects in school, uh, generally the like maybe liberal arts or humanity subjects, whereas I found that the STEM ones were very much based on that, here's some facts, recall them, model. Um, and maybe that's just a result of having to write an essay where it doesn't actually matter whether you remember the, the facts or not. The point is that you've read them and then thought they were important enough to write down. Here we get into all sorts of questions of how the human brain works best. Hmm. Humans do best when whatever they're working on is a story where there's characters and something happens and something has to be resolved. Mm -hmm. So the minute maths is taught through story problems, kids do better at maths. Simple as that. If you want to teach adults who aren't numerate maths, don't just give them the simple numbers. Tell them stories where they have to work out from the story how to do the maths. And because they're already good at stories because they function within society as adults, they'll learn maths faster. It makes a huge difference. Um, beyond the story side of this, you've also got the thing that in order to function with other people, we need to use language and compare language with each other and learn new words and add concepts. So the jump to STEM can be a big conceptual and language leap where because there's no chance to use a story and lay things out in sentences and paragraphs and express them in words, a majority of people struggle. Yes, there's a minority that are incredibly good at working in STEM, 
predominantly with symbols representing other things. But most people will do better if you can bring it back to language and stories. Mm. Uh, and in the schools that try this, okay, there's still people who struggle with STEM. You know, there's probably some evidence that I think it's called the Flynn effect from memory, that every decade humans are getting slightly smarter because of good nutrition, safer environments, and more opportunity for education. But just because the majority are getting better doesn't mean maths is getting any easier. In a sense, if there's a chance to use language and tell stories in the humanities, people whose brain is doing a bit more effectively are still going to do those things more easily than they're potentially going to do maths. Mm. So you know, we probably need to think of whole new ways to learn maths. You know, we're running on the regimented system developed to normalise, self-regulate and make useful young people from, say, the 1810s onwards. Mm. And it worked very good for getting people to a basic level to go into apprenticeships or a basic level to be able to work out how much change to give someone in a store. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Most people could learn that much maths with repetition and the risk of discipline. But now we're saying by the end of year 12, you have to have math suitable to undertake and understand physics, Mm. math suitable to begin engineering at university. When in human history was that level of maths normal for anything but a tiny proportion of the elite? So based on the fact that we've still essentially got our mushy 100,000-year-old Stone Age brain that is not used to literacy, not used to numeracy, and we're now saying by the end of school you need to have maths ready to start engineering, Mm. Uh, we need to remember here that even though we're evolving and we most certainly still are, the more we do things, the more we use our brain. How we use our brain determines how we wire our brain. How we use our brain determines where the myelin goes. But we're working with a biological system that was developing very incrementally for most of that 100,000 years. So if we look 100,000 years ago, a brain would pretty much look like a brain now. But look what we're asking of that brain in the last 200 years, in particular since World War II in the last 70 years. What we ask of someone in maths and science, but instead of doing three or four subjects, now they might be doing eight or nine. Mm. And they've got all the social pressures of instant access to the whole world via their phone or their laptop. And yet, how much of that makes sense? We've got the whole culture of celebrity. We've got the fact that people now see in a day more images of other people than 500 years ago a person would have seen in their lives. Now, people are important. What are you going to pay attention to? Maths or photos of pretty people? (laughs) Pretty people is biologically important. Mm. So we are now so out of the biological bucket that our brain developed in that we need to go, hang on, these brains are under pressure. We need to take some of the pressure off. We need to focus on getting these brains to know how to do the best they can and not over-bombard people with the stuff they need to know because the most important skill now, once you've got your fundamental skills of literacy, numeracy, how to function in society, is how to discern what other things are credible and how to find them, evaluate them, and use them when you need them. You don't need to walk around with everything ready in your head anymore. That's what your phone's for. Mm. If it's viewed as a tool, not a toy of social distraction. I mean, I'm not sure if you ever had this, but I definitely had uh, teachers, at least in primary school, 
that was said things along the lines of um, you never you're not going to have a calculator on you at all times and now we do well uh, see this is where I, I'll take an in-between point and I'll say you guys can't have calculators until you've shown me you can do the basics of maths mm. once you've shown me you can do the basics because of the world we live in I might periodically throw a curly question at you where I want you to do it just using paper and pencil yeah but that's going to be the odd bod day so is there any credibility in your mind to different learning styles? Uh, just from years of teaching, I definitely think there are different learning styles. Mm. I think here it's important to sort of jump to something we know about education that we don't really want to acknowledge. 1970s, 1980s, two very smart anthropologists, mm. you know, uh, Gene Lave and Etienne Wenger, got fascinated by, okay, how is it in countries with terrible education systems people can still learn a trade and while learning the trade learn to do enough maths to do the accounts books and learn to write well enough to write a letter a letter to a client mm. how's this happen and the first big case study for them was to go to liberia which had a terrible education system and look at how kids who were barely literate and numerate could start an apprenticeship to become a tailor and by the end not only could make beautiful clothes but could also keep the ledger to make sure that everything was all right financially and write letters to their customers. And what they saw was you start on the edge of something, you start as a peripheral actor and you learn the littlest thing. And while you're learning the littlest thing, you start making sense of the culture of the environment you're going into and you start working out what you have to do to gain status. So, you know, in the tailor store, you start by sewing on buttons. Mm. The simplest thing. After sewing on buttons, the next step is you're allowed to make the buttonholes. After buttonholes, you move on to doing hems at the end of shirts and trousers. But while you're doing this, there's a direct connection between learning that technical skill and increased status in the workshop. So there's a reason to learn. Mm. As the time goes on, you start having to learn a little bit of maths. How many reels of that colour cotton have we got left? Yeah, Come over here and learn to read the labels so when I ask you for something, you know which one to go and get. And each step along the way in the five-year process, from starting at 12 and finishing at 17, a kid would have to learn another technical skill in sewing and another literacy or numeracy skill in order to get more status in the workshop to get a higher position. By the time these kids were say, into their third year of their apprenticeship, they would be teaching the new kids starting how to sew a button on, how to do a buttonhole, how to do a hem, and start teaching them, well, here's how you count up the cotton. Here's how you read the names on the cotton. Here's how you read the names on the different bolts of material. So that out of a system where there was no apparent successful formal education system, you were getting people who could learn a technical skill and literacy and numeracy. And this model of education became known as situated learning. You start as a peripheral actor. The more you learn about the technical thing, the more status you get, the more status you get, the more you feel valued, the more you value learning. And at the end, you end up at the center as a central actor, defining the future of the institution. And if we look at some of the most advanced skills we still teach people to this day, becoming a doctor, you know, whatever your speciality, 
becoming an engineer, becoming a lawyer, we are still using situated learning. Mm. So when it's really complicated and it really matters, we've got a formal system that gets enough stuff in your head to be useful in the situation, and then you go into the situation at the very lowest level and are supervised and only given marginally more responsibility as and when you're ready. And when you have to learn the most complicated things in the world, it works brilliantly. When you start without a formal system and need to become a tailor in a developing country, works brilliantly. And I'd say one of our great mistakes with education at the moment is to think you can put things in people's heads in a purely abstract environment or that you can pretend that the abstract environment of the classroom is a real place. (laughs) So thus my focus this semester in the course you've been doing on, I'm going to teach you skills, I'm going to show you in what situations they've been used successfully and we aren't going to pretend we're in those situations because we aren't. I need to hope that you're... You know, building better circuits to learn how to learn a new skills has gone up, but I'm never going to pretend that we're doing situated learning because we're not. And yet, if you've got the ability to hone skills, to learn to learn, and then you go into a, a situated learning environment where you're rewarded for the ability to learn the next thing and with the reward of knowing how to do it, you also get more social status, well, there's a path to success that has worked reliably in most complex discipline complex disciplines now for centuries so we know what works it just takes more time it's more expensive it relies on proper mentoring it relies on giving people time to work out what they want to do and then giving them the education specific to that so at the moment we are trying to make absolute generalists people at 17 who have the foundations to do a hundred things but 90% of those things don't interest them. As you said yourself, you've forgotten the maths. Mm. Now, I loved physics because of being blind at the time without adaptive technology. There was no way to keep going with physics. So even though I loved it, I can't remember anything. Mm. Now, all that means in my brain is that as I've built circuits for the things that matter to me, I've got new myelin in my brain that's gone on the new circuits and made them stronger but also you move you know the white matter the myelin from old circuits that you don't use anymore so perfect example of that i used to be a very good violinist then the consequences of using the cane for half the day and the violin bow the other half just caused too much pain in my right wrist Mm. i had to quit violin now if we had sophisticated enough neuroscience we'd be able to look and see, hey, here's a whole pile of circuits in the bit of the brain we would expect to connect with playing an instrument. Oh, look, the circuits are still there, but the myelin isn't. It's been moved to be useful. To provide context for listeners, you can make a lot of myelin until you're 50. At 50, you can only make a little bit of myelin. So wherever you're at at 50, if you want to learn a new thing, you will take myelin away from a previous circuit to the new circuit more than you'll make new stuff. Until you're 50, you can make myelin as and when you need it. The more you push the brain in a disciplined way to do something and improve it slightly every day, the more myelin you'll make and lay down. You know, your brain wants to help you if the things you are doing will help it. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, an education system that creates absolute generalists by age 17 
and then has a lot of degrees that are still absolutely generalist and too abstract that doesn't lead people into situated learning fast enough is meaning we're putting little bits of myelin everywhere rather than enough myelin where it matters to people and we're not putting enough myelin where it matters to achieving the success people are genuinely capable of. It's, it's, been, it's a bit alarming having this ticking time bomb of ability to essentially be fast at a lot of things, be fast at recalling a lot of things and having strong enough circuits. It's not necessarily knowing more stuff because I suppose, as you said, the circuits are there for learning an instrument. It's just about whether you can recall or use that information quickly. Precisely. You mm. guys see in class, you ask me a question, I ponder for four seconds. Mm. That's how long it takes to find it. Mm. That's because the memory is there, but it's not a strong circuit. Mm. But it gets used enough because of teaching to not become even weaker. And the problem of distraction and too many things for young people, for children, for young adults, is you've got little bits of myelin everywhere. Mm. But unless you're really focused and you really want to be good at something, not enough to help you get even better. Because everything is equally weak, <laughs> which makes everything harder work. Hmm. One thing I found very positive from doing your course this semester, David, has been that I'm someone who, at least I like to think I learn better orally, orally rather, um, through listening through and through watching. Like I will, and perhaps this is a matter of ease or whether this is just maybe more universally true, but I will find it easier to consume information via um, being talked to or um, watching a, a, a YouTube video, for instance. And that's been the nice thing about having some of the readings this semester is that going and reading a like a journal article hasn't been as laborious because it's not 12 journal articles every week. No, it's a very deliberate choice. Mm. I would argue that until we got smartphones, most people's predominant way of absorbing new information was through listening. Mm. Um, and we know that historically, the minute humans made fire and started sitting around the fire telling stories, they couldn't see each other, but they could hear each other. And that that kicked off the brain working in a different way. People would listen, they would then imagine, they would then paint their own picture of the story they were being told. Mm. And that that had a huge impact on the development of the brain. Now, during the day, the world was very, very visual. But what that meant was there was an incredible balance between listen and watch. You know, literacy wasn't there yet. People listened to someone else talk. So being blind, for me, I've always loved to listen because it made things accessible. Mm. So you know, I would sit and talk to you a lot and turn things into stories because mm -hmm. stories work. Post-2012, where smartphones have become ubiquitous, I've had to go, okay, as much as I'm only getting half the information out of videos, you lot are getting both halves. And that if I give you a list of eight videos to watch and six things to read, more people will watch all the videos than will ever do some of the reading. And that as long as those videos are good enough, mm. you're getting enough to then go, I want to know more, but you've already got foundations. Mm. So when you start reading, you've got whatever I've said that had a story. You've got a video that, if possible, had an interesting person telling a story or at least had audio and visual combined. So by the time you get to reading, you're already halfway 
to knowing it and two-thirds the way to caring about it. Mm. And already knowing half of it and caring about it more than you know, you're going to do the rest of the work. So to my mind, this is the recipe to get information into people's heads in the era where screens are ubiquitous, listening skills are not quite as good as they were, and even though you are all literate and numerate to quite a reasonable degree, they are still less well-suited to good outcomes than listening and watching are. And it's also something that I found... I find it harder actually most of the time. I found I've learnt more from the videos in in a solitary setting than when the, sometimes when they're played again in the in the lectures. Absolutely. Mm. You know, in solitary you watch them in your comfy, happy space. Yeah. In class you're surrounded by people that you find interesting or odd or whatever. Mm. But it's turned back into a social event. Mm. And because I teach in a way where I want you guys to be comfortable with each other, it is a social event. You know, if someone's giggling in the background, I'll wave my hands in the air and click my fingers for 10 seconds mm. rather than scream, shut up. Mm. What's the point of screaming, shut up? People are happy. While they're happy, they've got endorphins. While they've got endorphins, they'll be learning. Mm. I may waste 10 seconds getting their attention back, but wasting 10 seconds to get them back with happy endorphins mm. is worth wasting 10 seconds. And the key thing too that is you know, a huge underpinning reason for why we have to reduce what people have to learn is repetition is what gets things in people's head. Repetition with variation. So if people have watched the videos at home before they come to class, I've then introduced them, then we watch them again as a group, and then I add a few comments and then get you a lot to talk about them, you've been through that material in five slightly different ways. That's what's going to make the concept stick. Yeah. And it's... It's also logical as well. I think sometimes it's underappreciated that logic is a mathematical language. Yeah. And that, you know, learning, you know, we know what a neuron is. We know what myelin is. They're biological. They work the way they work and we're stupid to work against them. <laughs> so sometimes I go, golly, am I being too repetitive? Mm. And then I have to remind myself, no, because I've known the stuff for 10 years and taught it for 10 years. So for me, I would only need to hear enough to trigger it. Whereas I need to teach you lot enough to remember it. And it's you know, always a juggling act between me wanting to repeat far less, but knowing you know, a class needs enough repetition and always with slight variation or it will be mind-numbing. You know, there's got to be a slight difference. There's got to be things we added. I need to point out what I need you to see. But then I need to ask what else you saw Mm. so that you're going from watching it without context to being given a context Mm. to watching it with that context to talking about it in the context and then stretch it beyond it. Mm. And in most cases, we do most things in class the same way. You get a bit on your own. I give you a context and a bit more. Then we revisit. Then you guys talk a bit. Then we add something else to it. This is the path for getting people to remember. You know, when I first taught the complex problem, course as applied thinking in 2014 with my friend Charles Vanderpeer. The last day where we've been 10 days intensive, we just gave people blank bits of paper and said, look, don't look at your notes, write down everything you've learned that you thought was valuable. Mm. Most people wrote down 90% of the material in the course. (laughs) It blew us away. Some people asked for more bits of paper. 
because wow. they'd filled out two sides of the sheet. And it's like, okay, repetition with addition, with improvement, with links, day in, day out for 10 days, people would learn huge amounts of stuff. Now, it's slower where you're doing, you know, Tuesday mornings, Wednesday afternoons. We lose five days in the middle every week. Yeah. But still, the amount of stuff when you guys come up and sit with me in the tutor and go, I'm working on this and I want help with this, you can already link it to major concepts. Mm. You can link those major concepts to the other major concepts you think might be helpful or that you've disqualified because they didn't help with your problem. Most people, if they come and talk to me, will demonstrate in 30 seconds knowledge of five useful problem-solving concepts. That's successful learning. You've got the concepts in your head. What you do with them now, that's your life. Mm. But by working with repetition, by keeping the amount of information you need to learn to a useful minimum, to reinforcing the idea of building circuits, reinforcing the importance of process, the majority of you in the class you know, have learnt a heap. And even the people who are not that switched on have learnt a fair bit. So how do you feel about, let's say, in tertiary education especially? I think there are things that we are taught that don't line up with a practical use. I mean, and that's true of most parts of education, but you know, there's particular essays that I'll have to write on things that are very academic, let's say for a media degree, which I also do, that I have yet to find a use for in my practical endeavors in media. So it seems like it has an identity crisis. It doesn't know whether it's setting me up to be an academic or it doesn't, or setting me up to be a media professional outside of university. Yeah, there's multiple streams and threads and it's a real problem. Mm. The first of all them is that academia was the world of rare facts. Mm. The things you learned there were rare. And it's an example I love. Uh, a friend of mine wrote an essay in 1995 or 1996, can't remember what year anymore, um, on a German anarchist called Max Stirner. And our lecturer had talked about Stirner for 10 minutes in the lecture. And Steve had become fascinated. He then went to the Barsmith Library, one of the best university libraries in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. There was Max Stirner's main book, The Union of the Egoists, and there was one book on Stirner, Breakout from the Crystal Palace. Mm -hmm. And that was all that was available in one of the best libraries in the Southern Hemisphere. So Steve devoured these two rare books to write his essay on them. And instead of a world of, oh, I want to see 20 references, George marked it perfectly happily because Steve had used all the information that was available. Mm -hmm. Those facts were rare. Someone knew now as many facts about a Stirner as anyone would know unless they learnt German, went to Germany and did a PhD on him. So you've got multiple generations of academics who came through the world of facts being rare and just learning them to have them there later was profoundly valuable. I think the other thing is it's easy to lose sight of the fact that what you're learning is skills. Yeah. When you're writing an essay, it's not necessarily about what the topic is. It's the ability to write the essay. Yeah. And that's part of the other side of you know what Steve did working on this. With only two sources, he had to use huge amounts of his own ability to critically analyze the two things and demonstrate that even though there wasn't a lot of material, 
there was a lot of him in the essay. There was a lot of, is this credible? How does it work? What does it mean? Mm. There was a lot of careful dissecting. There was, you know, an incredibly good job of doing the most with minimal material. So he demonstrated a huge amount of skills in analyzing and working with the limited number of rare facts available. So part of the thing with tertiary education is the people who go through this rare fact world have invested huge amounts of time in doing the most they can with rare facts. Mm. They've invested in the skills of being good at critical analysis, good at writing a complex argument without ever really thinking about how they did it. And I think this is the biggest thing that changes in academia. When I was an undergrad in the 90s, most people who were academics you know, had only ever had a limited number of books and desperately wanted to be at uni and desperately wanted to be an academic. They either had a calling very quickly, this was their thing, or it grew on them very strongly. Mm. But now we have a world where eventually you know, 40% of young Australians are meant to, to get a degree. Uni was about teaching people who either through privilege or bloody-mindedness were there, a, a minority of the population. And the people with privilege had had enough education to do okay. The people who wanted it were going to work out how to do well. So you were, in a sense, you know, my observation of being in the middle of my degree in 1995 is the majority of people in a tutorial with me knew how to learn, wanted to learn, and wanted desperately to do well at this strange thing that not everyone did. Mm. Whereas now you're you know, the average 17-year-old finishing year 12 this year is being told, you're more than likely going to go into university where we'll add mm. more general knowledge to you while you work out what you want to do. Just keep doing what you've done. We'll put stuff in front of you. You jump over the hurdle, long at learn enough to pass the test, and then move on to the next general knowledge. So we've got a complete mismatch between academics who came out of the rare fact world and the you're only at uni because you desperately want it or it's expected of you world mm. to a world now where we've got tons of people at uni who don't mind being there but also they don't love it. They don't desperately want it and they haven't become self-driven learners they don't know how to teach themselves. You know, I would say in most of my undergraduate degree, most subjects, I found the lectures so profoundly boring. I just went away and got people to read the reading material to me. I just did the work. I knew how to learn. Mm. The only time I would go and bug an academic was if in doing that, I'd come up with a really cool idea for an essay, knowing that you can't get a mark unless you're writing what they want to see. Mm. So well, I better take my crazy idea over to my tutor. Hey, tutor, do you like my crazy idea? Yeah, your crazy idea is awesome. Okay. <laughs> or, no, that's really weird. Don't do that. Do this. Mm. I'm like, you sure? And they're like, well, do you want a really high mark again? Yeah. Okay. Do the thing that works. So part of it was you have to learn how to learn, but you also have to be able to read the environment like it's a situated learning environment. And I would argue until the late 90s, most good universities still kind of were situated learning environments. You came as a little nobody. If you did well, you got invited to do honours. If you did well at honours, you got invited to start a PhD. 
And along the way, there was no formal learning for how to be a successful academic. You were just exposed to people who had succeeded. And that worked when classes were small and mainly full of people who could teach themselves. So in a sense, tertiary education is struggling now because in so many disciplines, they are teaching so many people who Mm. don't know how to learn and still have to be taught. And universities don't know how to teach. They're learning out of painful experience. Yeah. What they knew was you want to be here, you want to succeed, here's the stuff you need to learn, off you go. The, the secondary education system isn't preparing them enough for the, what the idea of a tertiary experience would have been. No, and mm. tertiary in itself is changing to the point now where we have more and more subjects. Well, at Adelaide University, we have inquiring minds, mm. the subject to try and get you all inquisitive again and get you taking responsibility for your own learning mm. and get you to take responsibility for doing things at a high level. Mm. And um, it's funny because people still react to that in a way that's, it's like a rule because it's a comp- it's a compulsory course. Yeah, I know so many people that have, and maybe they're bad experiences because of the group discovery mm-hmm. experience, but maybe they're bad experiences because people don't want to be forced to do those things. And they look at it not as a, an opportunity to be curious. They look at it as I have to do this. I think part of it is that and the other part is they're so used to there's the hurdle, jump it mm. through school and through NAPLAND that they then get to university and they, all they want to know is where's the hurdle. Yeah. You know, the majority of people are not at university anymore to become a thinker, to become a physicist, to become a research chemist. They're at uni to get a pass to join a profession. Yep. And they want the learning bit over as fast as possible because learning is too general, too <laughs> vague, <laughs> it's not personal, and their inquisitiveness has either been stifled or undervalued. And as a consequence, the uni experience is just an extension of year 12. So what they want to know is that someone will put the hurdle in front of them and they'll jump it Mm. and then they'll move on the next hurdle. So we have the massive problem now that as the universities change to suit the mass who just need to know where the hurdle is to jump it, we've still got the small proportion of people who know how to learn and want to be stimulated, you know, to be exposed to stuff they couldn't even imagine existed. But the problem is for any teacher now, you have to balance. Here's a hurdle. Most of you just clear it. Yeah. But for those of you who want to be exposed to things you didn't even know exist, yeah, off on the periphery here, here's your toy. Mm. Go have fun and come back once you've learned it. So you know, I would always argue in teaching there's always three groups in the room. A group who at whatever age have already got the fundamentals of knowing how to learn, they will always be fine. Teaching them is a pleasure, but if you spend your time with them, you miss the middle group who need clear targets. So the trick is to give the middle clear targets but somehow still engage the top group. Mm. And the bottom group are always those who don't really enjoy learning for whatever reason, don't know why they're sitting in the room and really just want it to be over. Mm. And they're the hardest group to get through to because they've already generally opted out. Because there's no difference intellectually between the middle group who need hurdles put in front of them and clear arrows of where to go and the bottom group. Mm. The bottom group just can't see the point. So teaching is an irony of how do you balance these three groups and my model has always been the top group will be fine so I'll throw them a bone when I can to keep them entertained. Mm. I'll give them something weird to do off in the corner together. (laughs) But in the main, it's going middle group. You see that group that are off doing something fun in the corner because I was able to give them something weird to do? 
catch up. Mm. Yeah, and when I get a cohort like your current cohort, we're through self-selection. Everyone is at least halfway up the middle group. Mm. Now we can generally start moving. Mm. And we can only ever move as fast as the slowest person if we want to bring them along. It's nice to bring them along, but there are terrible moments where you go, actually, if we move at the rate of the slowest person, they're not slow, they just don't care. Mm. There's no time anymore when education has been so privileged and overvalued you know, to work that slow. Either you take someone like that aside and go, come on, come spend an hour with me and let's catch you up. Because you can't slow the class or you'll lose everyone. It's funny, I actually kind of identify with all three groups. I've definitely been all three of those at different stages depending on what it is that I'm learning. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the terrible thing of people becoming teachers and being taught a uniform system for a uniform student. No, we should all have felt like this is easy. If someone gives me an arrow, I can follow it, and this is just too hard and I want to quit. Mm. If we haven't experienced all three, like for me, the killer in school you know, was advanced maths. Partially it was because I couldn't see it and I was trying to do it all in my head. Mm. That was a nightmare. Um, but partially it's because I've got enough maths to make sense of physics, or I had, because physics explained the world. But pure abstract maths was just not my thing. Mm. That was lethal. In that, I felt stupid. But, you know, writing an essay on, you know, a crazy Russian 19th century anarchist like Mikhail Bakunin was just like intellectual backflips. <laughs> it was awesome. It was show-off time. But we should all have had the experiences from this is so easy and such fun to I don't even know what to do next if we're going to teach people. So just to finish up, do you, do you have anything you can recommend for people who are curious but aren't in the tertiary education system? Uh, I suppose the ultimate place to start, um, there's a journalist called Daniel Coyle mm. and he's written a couple of books. I think one is called The Talent Code and one is The Little Book of Talent. And they both open with explaining how circuits are made, how circuits are strengthened, and how myelin moves, and how this has been applied all over sport, the military, uh, elite performance in chess, elite performance everywhere. And if people out there want to learn, understand the biology you're working with first. Because if you understand the biology, then you're working with something that will help you if you help it. Mm. But if you work against the biology, you're going to get a miserable outcome. And would you also say find something you're interested in? That's definitely important. Yeah. Also acknowledge that what you've done so far will shape how you go forward. Mm. Perfect example of this. The lady who cuts my hair is at uni at the moment for the first time ever. Wow. And she finds studying to be awful. Mm. And I asked her a simple question. When you study, do you sit down? She goes, of course I do. And I go, how do you spend your whole day cutting hair? Uh, standing up. Go, right. Tonight when you go home, put your laptop on top of a box on your breakfast bar and do a half-hour study standing, which is your body's cue for switch on. Mm. Next time I had a haircut, okay, how'd it go? My studying is going so much better. You've got to work with what you know, what you're good at, and gradually bend who and what you are towards where you want to go. You can't change gear 100% instantly and expect success. 
You've got to work with where you're already successful and leverage it. And understand that, you know, in the same way, you know, grey and white matter explains the biology of your brain. The habituation to when I'm concentrating, I'm standing up. When I'm sitting, I'm relaxed. If that's your reality, use that to study more effectively. Mm. You know, know who you are so you can work out where you want to be and how you're going to get there. So one thing that I've found recently is after doing a big five personality test, which is is probably the most trusted personality test in psychology at the moment, I have high openness to abstract ideas, which is exactly the kind of thing that I like learning. Mm. It's more the abstract. Yep. You proved what you already know. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But also (laughs) what you've already done led you to that answer. Yeah. Success leads you to answers. It's kind of deterministic in that way. Yeah. Like I'm good at telling stories because I was good at listening to stories. Mm. Listening was how I learned. So I teach by talking. Mm. That at some level, as much as there might be an underlying potential in your brain, if you get success in something slightly different and you keep building on that success, you will end up better at the thing you've done well than the thing you could have done well. Mm. It's this whole idea of, you know, um, predeterminism yes you might have neurology that suggests you could be good at something but if you don't put the myelin on those circuits you won't be wherever the myelin goes is what you'll become good at right i think that kind of sums up most of the things that perhaps you wanted to cover is anything you wanted to add i think that's plenty of stuff on education for people (laughs) to think about and you know if people want to ask us questions then occasionally we can do a podcast of answering questions yeah i think that's probably going to be the best way to go is just have the occasional hey i want to know this Mm. and we'll fill in any gaps that way definitely get an email out where people can send an audio version of them asking the question or just send us an email absolutely or just do it on facebook or linkedin wherever is easiest for people that's definitely true so next time we're probably going to be talking a little bit about communications does that sound good to you sounds good to me excellent thank you so much david thank you too